UK Motor Talk. Well, hi everyone and welcome back. Now, if you've been listening to our last couple of podcasts, you will know that they were the specials. Not the specials, but specials nevertheless. And we hope that you enjoyed. Hopefully we will bring you other specials when we go to other things that are interesting. Now we are once again out in the world. I would say once we're out in the world, but there's been some issues. And unless you, well, don't have a car or you're very smug and it's electric, then you've probably run into some issues over the last couple of weeks getting fuel. Well, I say you guys probably have. I haven't because I've got a petrol station. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, I, some. I did see the pictures of the queues, though, and our um, our missing in action colleague this evening marshalling them all day. He didn't look like he'd had a fun fun time stood there in the middle of the forecourt trying to get people not to take the last remaining drops of fuel in the whole of the county. We did. We had 14 hours straight on the Friday, 12 hours straight on the Saturday, and then thankfully we ran out of fuel. We all just stood there trying to get the cars in and people were generally very nice and really very helpful bar a couple and yeah we we were just praying that the fuel was going to run out so we could go home <laughs> it, it got it got to that point where it was just ridiculous and it was a case of it was like like a run on the banks isn't it yeah there's, there was plenty of fuel to go round, but all of a sudden everyone wants to withdraw and we had no problems with tankers no problems with drivers no problems with deliveries up until the point when someone said, oh, goodness, there's an issue. And I think the rumour started because a couple of BP stations couldn't get fuel. And that was due largely to some people being off due to COVID, some people being off due to holidays. And then everybody panicked, which was helped by the government saying, for the love of God, don't panic, which is something we do well. So we immediately stocked up on toilet rolls just in case. <laughs> it didn't help that it got so much coverage in the media when, when right at the very beginning. And every... BBC programme, local and or national, was uh, was screaming about it. It was the top of the news on every channel. And, and you know, the world just went mad from there, there on in. I'm sure there was enough fuel. In fact, uh, I have managed to get fuel uh, most of the time, even though I've been driving some ridiculous distances. Well, they were saying mm. at the time that it was the, the motorway services were the ones that still had it. But uh, then you also need a numbered Swiss bank account in order to pay to fill up at places like Heston Services. Other services mm. are available, obviously, but uh, they are a particularly avaricious uh, set of services that I can think of. But I was getting to the point where I was thinking, well, sod it, I'm going to go and um, <laughs> I'm just going to go to the motorway and fill up. Fortunately, the day before it all kicked off, I did hear on the radio this um, the, the first whispers of it them saying a few forecourts a few bp forecourts as you said had uh, said they'd had to close temporarily because they were having a bit of trouble and i thought i know where this is going to land so um because i was basically on three quarters empty i thought it would be prudent to go and put some fuel in not panic buying prudent i will point out and uh, as it turned out it was a very very good move because i well remember the year 2000 where we were all stood there wondering how we were going to get down the shops or to the next thing we needed to do when they were blockading the um the the refineries and so on and i just thought you know a leopard doesn't change its spots britain is a panicky nation we're all particularly spooked at the minute and so it came to pass everyone lost their stuff and uh, away we went fun and games now it only just around here it only just seems to be getting back to normal our local sainsbury's they've got everything no queues no dramas there but yet you drive to the other end of the road about a mile 
down and the shell has still got two-thirds of its pumps covered up so it's it's not sorted out it seems to be sorted out in the rest of the country but down here in the southeast where we all are or the south and southeast it does still seem to be a bit patchy mm. it was the diesel that was causing the, the bigger problems the moment that we ran out of diesel and we certainly ran out of that first because all the the taxi drivers were, were saying oh the, the guys got diesel and we'd have delivery vans come and fill up then you could certainly see the tail off. And it's it's incredible because I didn't realise there were that many diesel vehicles still left on the road. We hear that this year, certainly diesel and electric sales are, are basically one for one. But yeah, there's there's still loads and loads of diesel vehicles out there and lots of people need to get to lots of places and everybody coming in justifying why they needed fuel. It's you need Everyone needs fuel to get to work or to do something. Um, the only thing that we, we made sure we did was was ensure we could pull emergency service vehicles in ahead of everyone else because we knew that, that definitely that they might need it more than, than anyone else. And God forbid you ever need an ambulance, but you definitely want it to be fueled and ready to go, don't you? You want to get out of its way if you need to. And you want to make sure it's got some fuel in it. So so there we go. And of course, you mentioned the year 2000 back then. Really, the the internet of things didn't really work in the way that it does now. So we can sit here and we can chat to each other via an online conferencing programme that sounds like Moon, but isn't. Um, other online programmes that aren't Zoom are also available. Um, and here we are all sat together. Of course, in 2000, you couldn't do that. So so things have changed. Thankfully, we have a bit of an out. Um, but here we are. We are all sat here, as we say, uh, other than Jim. So I, Mike, am sat here. Hello. Hello, I'm Graham. Good evening. I'm David, and I am talking to you via the miracle of the internet, which I couldn't have done 20 years ago. And once again, we've wandered off into some distant topic, still related broadly to fuel, admittedly, but without even saying hello. And my apologies, guys. So here we are. It's lovely to be sat here chatting with you. Now, there is something I did want to say. I want to say hello to everybody in India. Everybody? Everybody. Every single person, whether you listen to us yet or not... But guys, hello. Thank you for all the love and support. We're pleased to be in the, the top 20 of downloaded podcasts for UK motoring chat. Not even UK motoring chat, just worldwide motoring chat. But it's lovely to speak to you nevertheless. Thanks. We always said we were a, a, a global business, but um, certainly I'm pleased to hear from uh, that part of the world. Listeners everywhere. But do get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. Genuinely, it's always nice to hear from people. And, you know, whether you're just down the road from us or whether you're the other side of the world, equally, we all love cars, we all love driving. So get in touch. Tell us what it's like where you are. And um, are you having petrol troubles? I suspect it's only the UK due to the uh, certain decisions that have been made at a political level. But we won't go down that route because it will get my blood pressure through the roof and we don't want that again. Actually, talking of the fuel, just while I'm thinking about that, I'm going to shoehorn this in. I did read something yesterday and I've printed it off here because it was that important, which said, was eco-petrol really the cause of the UK's fuel shortages now as we all know and we've spoken about this in previous episodes uh we are now using e10 uh biofuels in the uk and uh, that means that the e5 fuels which had five percent of the bioethanol added to it are being phased out and have to all be gone and sold by i think the beginning of november and it has been purported by none other than the Petrol Retailers Association that the run on fuel could have been starting a couple of weeks earlier than it actually did here in the UK in 
what was it end of september beginning beginning of october it sort of really kicked off uh, and it could be because people were starting to run down their supplies of e5 and people were trying to get it while they could still get it and the pumps were running dry of the stuff that you used to be able to get but weren't going to be able to get until they started filling it up with e10 and now i don't think that means that people were panic buying because they didn't think they'd be able to get the right grade it's just that it wasn't there in the bowsers in the ground for you to be able to get out of the pumps and the pumps started looking like they were covered up and empty and that could have started to trigger the panic buying so Perhaps there's a bit of an argument for that, but personally, I think it is just down to what we've been told, which is the lack of drivers for various reasons, um, to get the stuff around to the places where it needs to be dispensed. There isn't a fuel crisis in so much as we haven't got enough in the country. It's just getting it to the point of supply. But I thought that was quite interesting because there could be something to do with that, but I strongly suspect that if it did have an impact, it was a very, very small one. But it could have been the straw that broke the camel's back, perhaps. Could have been just one more thing that we didn't need at that time i think it certainly could be a a factor now 95 percent of the cars in the uk currently will run on e10 with no problem we have for a long time us car enthusiasts when we've had stuff that's a bit interesting that you probably don't run as a daily retired cars at the end of september ready for the sleep over the winter when you take them off the road october until you do your next six months tax because traditionally you wouldn't tax per month you would tax for six months or a year so you'd have that march to september bid where it's actually nicer and your car doesn't get destroyed by all the salt and everything else that's on the roads so i guess there is a, a degree of that because you definitely don't want to let your car sit and I've gone on about this in the past, so I shan't do this again. But long story short, if you've got fuel with ethanol in it, it gets water in it, which corrodes the the bits and pieces inside older engines, carburetors and that kind of thing, and kills them, including fuel pipes and the like, like it did with my car and it did with the Supra that I look after. Um, so possibly a contributing factor. Uh, the timing is interesting. As you say, it, it, it could happen. I haven't really thought about it before now. Because you can still get the premium stuff. And a lot of people have had to, to resign themselves to the fact they're going to spend a little bit more on fuel. And I suspect we're going to see a little bit of a price hike over the next week or so as well. But there we are. It does seem to be that the trend is ever upwards. They're saying that we're paying uh, as much now as we were back in when it was at its highest back in 2013. And I, I had to fill up. I did manage to put some more in the other day. Um, and that was super unleaded, and it was about one fifty-eight a litre, which is obscene. Wow. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm, yeah. Fortunately, I didn't need a huge amount and didn't go mad. I only put in about sort of twenty quid's worth, which won't get me far, but it will get me further than I would have done. So, you know, now things mm. hopefully are settling down. Perhaps the prices will come down, but it's a global thing. I mean, the price of fuel is going up, like the price of gas is going up on a daily basis because the world is coming back to life after COVID, and there's a demand for it. People want it, so therefore the cost goes up. And unfortunately, we're we're all a bit sort of victims of bigger bigger events going on in the world. Except for Sweden, as it happens, as I was reading today, Sweden they think may be devoid of new internal combustion engine car sales by 2022 um, partly because there's such an incredible tax incentive i think it's about 25 percent VAT they have that you don't have to pay on electric cars as i understand it and there are tax savings and purchase tax savings and everything else along the line um but it's it's ridiculous apparently it was it was the point a couple of years ago it was one in four cars had an engine and now it's something like one in ten and it's going to be less than that very shortly because it's very expensive to buy cars with an engine in it so 
that's that's quite interesting, I think. Uh, and I do wonder whether this this fuel crisis will push a few more people, I was going to say over the edge then, but into electric vehicles, because all of a sudden, as we said at the beginning of the programme, you know, there's a lot of smug people, including Jim, I'm sure. Actually, I think Jim was just tired, to be fair, um, <laughs> just rolling around in electric cars. I think the, the public opinion does seem to be changing quite rapidly. I noticed a, a YouGov survey that was published today, which suggested that of the nearly 2,000 people it polled, uh, 61% said that they would happily consider an EV in uh, 2022, subject to being able to afford it, of course. But, you know, I think this is, there's, a, there's a public shift of emphasis, a change of mind. Uh, going on and it's going on quite fast well this year is the first year in which i've got to drive modern electric cars uh, one of them being the mac e and i was hugely impressed by that and uh, had a really <laughs> a really good time i don't think i'll be able to stretch to the uh, the full-on sort of twin twin uh, motor version top of the range one that uh, jim's swanning around in at the minute but it certainly opened my eyes up quite dramatically as to what is what is possible and just how drivable these things are you tend to think of them as some sort of alien craft that's dropped out of nowhere but ultimately it's a car you drive it it's got wheels you point it where you want to go with the steering wheel it doesn't make the same noises per se but it still goes pretty well and um i mean i think throughout all this recent idiocy that we've we've sat through you know quite literally sat through in queues miles long waiting to fill up with dinosaur juice I think it's got to be the future and I've seriously considered the fact that I think my next car quite possibly will be electric if it's not it'll certainly be a hybrid but I I think electric is going to be the way to go because I don't want to be at the mercy of something like this again I mean obviously now electricity is going to get so ridiculously expensive you won't be able to afford to charge the bloody thing but (laughs) you know you know you've got to try these things out haven't you and it is the future whether we like it or not electric is going to be the majority power source for for cars going forward to use that awful phrase whether or not hydrogen has a has a place um so yeah i think we're going to have to get used to it and i think this will make a lot of people seriously consider the the option of going electric it's still quite an expensive thing to do for the majority of people but they are getting cheaper and obviously as supply increases and the infrastructure increases and things improve the things will get cheaper until they are the same price as they are for the relevant internal combustion version i don't think we're we're that far away i mean there's there's a couple of things to consider um, you mentioned how drivable they are i find the, sort of the initial torque is pretty crazy um mm. and it makes it very useful it makes getting into a normal car feel a bit slow i, I think in terms of the cost yes they are expensive if you, if you look at the the cost of the car as as a thing if you look at the overall cost of owning a car and what it costs you to run it not so much so if you take a an ev that does about 300 miles it probably costs you about 11 12 quid to fill up this week i mean next week it probably be four hundred eighty-seven thousand pounds but nevertheless it's a, about 13 quid what's that in in real terms in a tank of fuel these days about 60 quid probably and the rest yeah with a slightly longer memory than both of you, I would suggest that, that during this introductory phase, it'll be relatively economic. It'll make a lot of sense. It'll make a lot of sense until the uh, the rest of the uh, the, the world's uh, chancellors of the exchequer decide that they're going to load it up because they will. It's only a matter of time, two or three years. Yeah. Then they'll start to figure out how they're going to load it up. The, the same happened with the introduction of diesel cars or the widespread introduction of diesel cars in in the 80s you know that that was that was a very very advantageous economically 
They might have been a bit mucky, but they went further for less money until they were well established. And then all of the European chancellors of the Exchequer, and it happened the same in the States, decided to, to load up on duties. The same will happen again. I'm sorry, It'll be a Jeremiah, but, uh, you know, I can see it happening. It's just a matter of time. And the, the, the infrastructure is already there to do that. So everyone that's had a, a, a charging point installed in, in recent times would have had a smart charging point put in. So I guess they could meter how much you use and then tax you on your usage. Um, so we, we obviously have fuel, then you have the VAT, and then you have the fuel duty, so you have your tax. Or you have your fuel duty and then the VAT, so you have tax on tax, which is fantastic. But you could imagine them chucking a electric duty for driving your car. That said... The way that the uh, renewables are coming on and, and, and building now, if there's a, an uptake of 39% on the grid, which I think there will be, there will be enough renewable energy, theoretically, to be able to counter that. I guess we'll see whether in 2030 we end up with a very cold and dark winter, but I'm not sure we will. In terms of hydrogen, I, th- I, I definitely think there's a future for that. But I, I see that being probably a decade away before it gets to a point where it's, it's viable and affordable. But if you look and see the the costs of uh, how how this you know hydrogen cars have come down, where it might have been you know the, the developmental cost of a car that would mean that it would cost more than a house, it's now sort of a third of the cost it was probably ten years ago. So it's moving in the right direction. As as is battery technology, as that becomes denser and you can store more more electric in less place and make it either lighter or or make the range greater or be able to charge it faster without degrading the batteries, so we will move on. Whether whether electric cars are the full future, obviously we don't know yet, but certainly in the short term, I think you'd, you'd have to be crazy to ignore the fact that it is at least the medium-term future, whether we like it or not. Yeah, I, I quite agree. I think it's the way it's, it, it's going, whether we like it or not. But, I mean, I can, I can see uh, issues that will build up later on, but um, they may not affect me at my age. <laughs> I guess... <laughs> The one thing that the fuel crisis did highlight for me is in the future when everybody is fast charging and the petrol stations have been turned into hydrogen stations or unless they've got hydrogen generators themselves or they get turned into massive service stations where you can fast charge a car or whatever, are we going to find ourselves rolling around in classics going, bloody hell, where am I going to find a fuel from? Because at the <laughs> moment, petrol stations are not quite on every corner like they used to be. I think the supermarkets have managed to, to see a way to that. But nevertheless, they, they, they are still pretty much everywhere. If you live in a relatively urban area, there's a fuel station. I'm going to bet probably no more than, what do we reckon, seven minutes away from your house, something like that. <laughs> I wish in my case. Yeah, but I mean, you, you live in, you know, in a mansion in, in the middle of you yeah. know, a 100-acre woods. It's your deepest, darkest uh, East Sussex. Yeah, exactly. But you know, assuming that, uh, that you don't need to use your car to get to the other side of your land... Uh, the, the chances are there's probably a petrol station not too far away for most people. I'll send one of the minions to fill up all the vehicles. <laughs> I've still got five bags for life here that are, that are filled with fuel just for David, just in case. Um, um, you're a good lad. I knew you'd look out for me. I've got those Evian bottles that I'll bring around to get the rest on, on a trailer or something. Actually, somebody who's found a way around this, again, shoehorn here, um, is none other than Prince Charles has found a very novel mm. way of running his um, classic Aston Martin. He's uh, he's running Cash. it on, on uh, E85 ethanol, which is made from quote surplus English white wine and whey from the cheese process. Now, that's 
a pretty good idea. I mean, obviously, he has the means from which to acquire the said products in order to create the same end products, and I'm sure it's not a particularly economical way of doing it. But it does prove the point that if you can find enough surplus... I mean, who the hell's got surplus wine? <laughs> There's no surplus <laughs> around where I am, I can tell you that. Whey, perhaps, yes, I can do without whey, but uh, if there's any wine knocking around, it's not going in the car, I can tell you, unless it's that stuff that they were uh, filling with windscreen washer fluid back in Austria in the 80s. But he is running his car on ethanol made from completely organic um, stuff. So it does prove that that's a potential thing i mean we are growing our fuel now which you know to go back to what we were talking about earlier the 10 percent uh bioethanol that is now making up um petrol and diesel in this this country so if we changed the economy we could in theory drive around on stuff that's just grown but i don't really see that being viable for the majority of us do you i'm not sure it's sustainable uh in, no. in in terms of environmentally sustainable if everyone was doing i think it's okay to start a conversation, and obviously this is what Charlie Boy's done there. He has start started the conversation. It would certainly make you feel better if you had, uh, you know, a huge amount of gout from all the cheese. <laughs> but but nevertheless, I think uh, I, I'm not sure it would work. A synthetic fuel, maybe, and mm. certainly for 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 those of us that want to run something that will shortly become a classic or whatever, or already is vintage, but. E85, isn't that like a, a race fuel anyway? It's Yeah, it's the pretty sort of hefty stuff, isn't it? That um, Isn't it uh, Koenigsegg have got a car that runs on it and it increases its sort of total output power by about 25% when they run it on compared to the super unleaded that it can also run on? So, yeah, it's pretty pretty hefty stuff. Wouldn't the mm. ideal be if, it's, if you're going to use wine, the, sorry, the perfect recycling system would be through your kidneys, assuming they're in good enough shape? <laughs> in which case the byproduct um might be worth investigating i could just see in the conversation now you'd be sat in the car next time someone goes and flies past you oh look at him he's just picked off <laughs> that would be <laughs> exactly so well if they if they they used to collect it sort of in victorian times didn't they for tanning of leather which is mm. uh, how the the um going for gunpowder pee, yeah uh how the uh, going for a pea originated because you've got a penny a bucket Mm. And not oh, having a pot right. to, to pick in. Mm. Uh, could, if you were that so. poor, you couldn't afford the pot to be able to sell it. Exactly we could make so. for some um, some interesting sights at the side of the road on the hard shoulder, hazard lights on. Somebody stood there, sort of <laughs> up against the tank. Which um, you know, the uh, and you can uh, you can say there's also there's an attachment in the boot for any ladies who may wish to contribute to the uh, to the occasion. It's uh, we realise it's not as easy. Ford has uh, Ford has got your back here. The Shiwi is located inside the fuel filler flap there. <laughs> I I wonder whether that means you know, maybe diabetics might be more valuable because you know. <laughs> <laughs> your time has come. come yeah that is it we can get out there this is our place in the world diabetes <laughs> becomes fashionable uh, well that's alienated a good half of the population and a bit more so who else can we go for? <laughs> if you have if you have a sensible idea about how we could use excess fluids from our bodies to power cars Please don't tell us, because honestly, we don't want to know. <laughs> well, if, we don't if, want to know. If you're, if you're a budding chemist and you've just listened to this and figured out a way of doing it, I would uh, invest an awful lot of money in you. You're going to make a fortune, boy. <laughs> and if you've got this absolute nonsense, please write to us. Uh, in the subject headline, please put, this is absolute cobblers at UK Motor Talk on any one of your socials. 
Now, we had a bit of a chat, didn't we, over the our, our little WhatsApp group about French and Italian cars. Now, I'm not a massive fan of French cars, but they do make some pretty cool stuff, don't they? I think if you look over the long history, there's been some wonderful cars come out of France from the, well, pre-First World War onwards. Some great cars. I mean, I, I jotted down a list earlier. I'm not going to go through the list, but there were some fabulous cars there. Unfortunately, there's also through the 60s, 70s and 80s, an awful lot of rubbish. Mm. And that's, you know, that's coloured everybody's perceptions, but... You take a look at uh, Delahaye, Delage, more recently. Delahaye's are very pretty looking cars. There's some beautiful cars. Beautiful if you've cars. not seen these, worth Google. Um, so if you think about cars with really swoopy wheel arches, wheels that are hidden behind. Um, if you think of a, a baddie in a Batman comic, this is the kind of thing you'd expect them to drive. It's sort of very Art Deco looking. Really, really cool. I have no idea how fast they are or how they handle or anything else. And frankly, I'm not interested because they're just a piece of art. These are cars that that swoop like the waves and look like they're moving whilst they're sat still. And I know that it, it sounds almost corny to say, but these things really, they really are pretty, aren't they? That You would have one of those mounted sideways on a wall. Very cool. <laughs> they were the height of automotive art and automotive technology at the time. And the other one I was mm. much more recent... Uh, is uh, Bugatti, and th- th- I think there's a common perception that Bugatti uh, is actually Italian. Well, of course, it isn't. It's French. And there's only, mm. I think, the the EB110 was the only Bugatti that was ever built in Italy. And I can't remember the reasons why. I think that's where the production uh, capabilities were at the time. But all of the Bugattis through through the twenties, late teens, early twenties, and onwards, all built in France, and a massive uh, collection of them. Uh, at one stage, a huge uh, Bugatti museum. Unfortunately, they fell foul of uh, uh, failing to pay any income tax, and the French state took the entire collection away and sold it. But there you go. But uh, Bugatti's ugly, I think. The, uh, the classic Bugatti's, vintage Bugatti's, pretty. EB110, not pretty. No, I agree. I agree. Like the Fassel Vega. The Fassel Vega is, is uh, it's a very elegant car. It's a, it's a, a very quick car, powered by massive Chrysler V8, but it's not pretty, not by any mm. stretch of the imagination. It's not swoopy. It's very of its time, very very square. There's a certain sort of French design phase that I've always been intrigued by, which I wouldn't say they were pretty cars, but they were intriguing, was the sort of early 70s through to the sort of 90s time where France was coming out with things like... Um, the the alpine the alpines you know yes. the alpine the the three tens yes. up to the 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 six ten the alpine one ten what a what a that's a oh, beautiful little brilliant car. Right, oh, I'm gonna make noises right yeah, yeah I, I can, that's, I can that's a favourite of yours I know that and, I can um, count on one hand the French cars that I I would love to own two of them are alpine a one tens the original one and the current one the current one that and and the Porsche Taycan are the only two. Two new cars I I would, I would love to own right now. Maybe Fiesta ST if I just wanted something to run around in because I think that's that's a fantastic drive. But that that said, an, an A110 very very pretty current the original versions and the current one I think proportionally perfect as and I'm not mm. going to go on about it because I've done this before. Um, Peugeot 309 GTI because I like a three box shape. Um, and an original DS. I think for me, those are the only French cars that I truly like. I, I get why people like the others. 406 Coupe is quite pretty. 
306, I think, was an okay car. I don't. I love the I love the 406 coupe, and I mean that that came off of uh, Pininfarina's drawing board at about the same time as the Ferrari 456. Hmm. You know, they 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 were being designed at the same time in the same design office by an Italian designer, Pininfarina. However, Hyundai Matrix is also, I think, styled by Pininfarina, so mm. you pays your money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the the DS that's that's a particular favourite. I mean, bear in mind yes. that thing came out sort of very very soon post war, and mm-hmm. it was just like something had landed from another planet, and yep. there it goes. And then never mind what was underneath it and what was driving it, and the the hydrogen pneumatics, all of that stuff. Just looking at the thing, it's like something from thirty years hence, and it must have must have been the most amazing thing to see for the first time. I, Yes, yeah. it's one of those wondrous things. The SM, you could argue, probably derivative of of the same thing. But again, it's not pretty, but it's striking, and it certainly yeah. gets your attention. Um, the the CX is one that I've always had a soft spot for. I've always quite liked them, particularly the stupidly long Safari ones, which tended mm. to make up most French ambulance fleets back in the eighties and nineties, as I remember. Mm. But uh, imagine the ride you'd get. You probably have the softest, floatiest ride. You've shattered your back in three places. You get driven to a hospital in one of those. You wouldn't even know you'd got there. It'd be like floating on air. You can see why they used them, but not not particularly pretty. Although you could argue that you know the the long sloping teardrop line at the back of the of the standard sedan version quite quite a pretty look. I, mm. I, I yeah, don't mind it. I quite, quite like a CX, a GTI Turbo Two would do me, but I think they're very difficult to get hold of and very difficult to get parts for, and you would just be permanently banging your head against a brick wall trying to fix the thing. I suspect all the time. I was championing the uh, the Clio V6, not a pretty car, but an interesting drive. Uh, certainly, mm. um, I've driven a couple and, and really really enjoyed them. But you know, yeah. th- th- they have their fans and they have their. Um, those that uh, really can't stand them. I, I the v, the Clio V6 is an interesting one because I think as a concept, fascinating. I love the look of the thing. I really do. I liked the Phase One and Phase Two. I thought they looked great, and I thought they were really quite interesting as a car. But I would say that when you're on the ragged edge, the Clio 172 and 182 uh, were far better cars. You can shoot me down for this one. Maybe not as interesting. You know, orally, they don't sound anywhere near as exciting. But as a driving machine, I, I think they were they were better. They felt lighter on their feet. They turned in better to my to my mind. Uh, and I, th- I think they handled exceptionally well. I've said before, I, I, Renault, the RS Renaults, as they call them, and I can't, it hurts me to call them an RS because they're not an RS, they're Renault Sport R dot S dot Renaults. They, they do seem to get right. And when you're driving above eight tenths, they really come alive. The R26 Armageddon with the scaffolding in the back. I, I used to quite like driving those. Um, the the uh, 197 Clio, which was pretty much hopeless around town to, for me personally. Again, fantastic. The little Twingo GTs. And we, we had a bit of a chuckle about the Renault 5 uh, GT turbos as well, which, which were everywhere uh, in the early mm. noughties when I was learning to drive. Um, and they were not expensive. My, my lasting memory... Is being in an XR3i driving through a tunnel and I could hear it coming. So I put my foot down, he put his foot down, came flying past me like I was standing still. And then there's just an almighty bang and bits of his engine came bouncing out of the exhaust from over the front of my car. And then he just barreled off into um, into a lay-by and that was it. And I, I assumed that he'd blown it up again because they were, I think, one four 
blow through carbs that, that weren't necessarily particularly reliable, but went very fast when they could, <laughs> when they did work. There was a lot of modification went on with those as well, quite often for performance. I mean, the towards the sort of latter years of when people were sort of still ragging them around, I don't think you would see many that didn't have an exhaust the size of a baked bean can sticking mm. out the back with noise to match mm. but they were the, the antithesis of the cars that i owned at the time which was my, my fleet of not altogether th- thankfully because otherwise i'd still be incarcerated in some sort of psychiatric institution now but um, i had one after the other three fiat uno turbos going from one of the early ones with the the night rider dashboard right up to one of the last which looked like a slightly shrunken tipo and those engines were very advanced for the time. They had all sorts of clever things like sodium-cooled exhaust valves and all sorts of very clever turbocharging and intercooling and all sorts of things, which was very good for its time. Apparently, they drew upon the Formula One experience of sister company Ferrari at the time. So you had Fiat at one end doing all the clever techie stuff, and you had Renault at the other end going, ah, oh, whack a great big dandraft on it, it'll be fine. But um, they were fairly evenly matched. The Renault 5... GT Turbo could probably outhandle an Uno. In fact, I know it could because, you know, back in the days of yore, we used to go chasing each other down country lanes in them. And I'm admitting to doing sort of things I would never do in a million years now, I hasten to add. But, you know, dragging people off the lights, all that sort of thing, it was fairly evenly matched. But I just preferred the Italian approach rather than the, the old spec push rod 1.4s that Renault were using because, as you say, they were a bit flaky, very flimsy and um, went bang quite often. I I seem to remember, I think we mentioned this in our chat on on WhatsApp, that um, quite a few, in fact, I'd say the majority of Renault 5 GT turbos were retrofitted with turbo timers because the things cooked themselves and also had fans that kept going for about 20 minutes after you switched off the ignition because of the the vapour lock that they were subject to. And again, that's another byproduct of um, old carb technology. But hey, they were fun to drive. People loved them. And whenever you see one on the road now, it's a it's a cause of joy for me. Yeah, I, I, when you see them, you just don't see many of them because a lot of them just got blown to pieces. They were very, very fragile. They were technically stretching a point with the engine capabilities that they had at the time. And, and you know, they just they just didn't last. That's aside from the bodywork, which is a different story. But. I uh, I know a chap who's got a, a Maxi, Renault 5 Maxi Turbo, uh, which is just insane. It's so wide. It's unbelievable. And it sounds like thunder uh, to the point where he's not allowed to, to start it before a certain time in the morning um, on fear of having the thing impounded. Uh, because it's just, it, it, it's, it's a rally car. It's a rally car that uh, is, is road legal has all the spot lamps on the bonnet. It's just, that is cool. If you think about the, the V6 Clio, and then think about that by comparison, and, yeah, these were, were road rally cars. They were, they were insane. But really not, insane. Not, not always terribly practical. I w- remember one of the Goodwood launches, which was held in London, and they drove along the, um, the Thames embankment. And I was driven in a five-turbo rally one by... Uh, Jean Reynotti, who was the, the great uh, French rally champion. And the, the bloody de- it was picking down with rain, and the demister system and the wipers didn't work at all. Hmm. I had a bunch of tissues trying to clean the windscreen in, in, in front of him so he could see where we were going just to keep up with the, with the rest of the uh, parade. That's brilliant. It was just uh, it was a very weird day. It was an absolute torrential downpour on all these incredibly valuable cars parading up and down the uh, the Thames Embankment. 
Italy's an interesting one, isn't it, when it comes to cars? Because these are these are cars of passion rather than practicality of reliability, typically. Uh, cars that, that like to be revved to the point where you know, you'd expect to see indentations appearing in the bottom of your bonnet in front of you, where everything comes out and dances along the top of, of your cam cover. They are fantastic, fantastic to look at. I should imagine not necessarily always fantastic to own. I'll have to admit that I've 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 sort of steered away from from owning Italian stuff just through the fear of the, the reliability. Although I did very nearly that same XR three, funnily enough, that um, that I got beaten by with the uh, the, the the five turbo. Uh, I had a chap who he was one of my neighbours and he had um, a an Alpha one five six, and it was oh, I forget the the trim now. So I'm beginning with V. Veloci. Veloci, mm. yes. And it had the big spoiler on the back, it had the Teledar wheels, a, a little pinstripe over the top, and this thing was was very pretty. And the interior was lovely. And I still think the interiors of the 156, 159 stack up today. I think they really do look great. Um, but I seem to remember that if you lent on the armrest in one point, one of the windows would go down. And if you didn't lean on another bit, the, the other window wouldn't go down. And it had some very, very odd little let's call them quirks shall we uh, and he'd offered he'd offered straight swap for his this alpha for my xr3 and i I remember being quite quite tempted by that as it happens he ended up buying my xr3 from me anyway uh without the swap further down the line you've only bought a couple of cars from me i think well let me tell you now you dodged a bullet there because i owned a <laughs> 156 and loved it literally to pieces the, it was a veloci one it was the sport wagon as well which to my eyes Ooh, had yes. the better lines yeah yeah mm. very good looking motor car it was. The proportions were fantastic, and it was a lovely thing right up to 72,000 miles where the gearbox detonated. <laughs> and uh, I had to very quickly uh, decline the kind offer of Alpha putting a new one in for 1,500 quid, find one on a pallet from a scrapper's for 150, and then four weeks later sell it as quickly as I possibly could at a huge loss trade-in against a Skoda, and I've owned Skodas ever since. But that was the end of the affair for me because... I'd had up to that point an unbroken line, unbroken. <laughs> I win. Um, I, I'd had a consistent line of Italian cars. Consistent broken line. <laughs> uh, broken line. Well, starting from um, an Uno 60, three Uno turbos, Tipo 16 valve, Fiat Barchetta, and then the 156. Loved every single one of them. Loved them all, but wouldn't again. The Barchetta was an absolute delight. And the Tipo 16 valve as well. My granddad had a yeah. Tipo. Yeah, they were hen's teeth, the 16 valves, they're very, very rare, and they were regarded as being one of the best handling cars of that lot. You know, the Renault 19, the XR3, um, I can't think what else was around. I think the the Astra GTE, all, all that sort of thing. It would uh, it would run rings around most of them because it didn't look like it, but the thing had a wheel at each corner and was a big, wide, square, boxy thing, and it mm. went around corners so well, and the engine was just monumental it was lovely it was a lovely thing and my um my brother bought it off me afterwards and uh, managed to blow one of the balancer shafts doing a um doing a test hill run at um at auto italia day at brooklands uh about six weeks after he bought it off me sorry mate sold a scene nothing to do with me you want to <laughs> rag it up a hill but he did find out actually that the thing had been chipped and i had no idea so it was putting out more power than it should have been but that car was brilliant because it was practical it had tons of room and mm. again it looked unless you knew what you were looking for it just looked like your standard hatch with some slightly prettier wheels on but um no great great car i've always loved it loads of space it was practical fun and didn't cost that much to run actually which was a bit of a miracle to be honest i still fancy a 159 
I really do. I think that those are, are great looking cars. So the, the triple headlamp again, cracking interior. And now it's it's whether or not you want to take the risk on something old and Italian. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want a diesel one. I want a petrol one. Um, and again, the things like Brera, they're they're all they're they're very gorgeous, very good value for money. But I seem to remember, I seem to remember a lot of the cost is in things like timing belts and stuff like that. I, I've, I, I'm I'm just struggling to remember what it was. Whether it was something like a grand or fifteen hundred quid or something stupid to do the belts on it, it was outrageous. And things the Brera, the Spider, both very pretty cars, both very affordable now also quite heavy so not necessarily the best handling but you could almost forgive it from the way that it looks these are very very pretty cars it's interesting we've been talking about italian cars for a while now and we've concentrated on the affordable end of the market and not mm. really talked about the ferraris and the maseratis and the lanciers and so on and so on which is which is what most people would identify very clearly uh, as italian performance cars but you know all of that performance was available has been available in in some very interesting cars from, from Fiat and some of the uh, some of the Lanciers the more affordable Lanciers actually saw a Lancia the other day a new one oh god oh dreadful right. things like the Ypsilon and all the rest of it oh my god whenever you're on holiday somewhere you see one of those things and it makes me want to be sick <laughs> horrible when you consider what they used to be capable of, I mean, they've, yes. to be fair, have had a chequered past, but I yes, think we indeed. do choose to remember the good ones. I mean, mm. Delta Delta Integralis, which I yep. believe price-wise have peaked a bit because they're starting to come down. So, you know, grab a bargain now while you can, while they're still just about out of the six figures, because they did go up to some stupid amount. I did read, actually, Lancia, or Lancia, as I believe we're meant to pronounce it, yes, um, have uh, started hinting at the fact that they are going to resurrect the Delta as an electric car, which could be interesting. So, mm, it could be interesting. A, a complete, well, it's going to be a completely different thing. I mean, it'll just be a, an homage to, but, mm. you know, if it looks a bit like an Integrale and it goes like an Integrale and probably far, far better than, you know, even the fantastic drive that you would have had in a standard four-wheel drive petrol integrally then i would say there's going to be quite a lot of interest in that i'd certainly have one if i had the money mm. Mm. i'd actually quite like to see a, a resto mod style um but done by lancia or lancia so like dacia um I, I think that'd be fantastic if they kept the body put modern headlamps on it modern you know, led tail lamps or something and then left the rest of it as it was and then did a, a, a modern interior inside it. I think that could be that could be quite something. It'd be quite a small car by today's standards, mm. actually. But a twin motor version of that with a you know a battery in the bottom. Definitely some better brakes needed. Oh, yeah. Yes, the Integrales always needed better brakes. Talking of resto modding, that reminds me again. Another bit of chatting we've been having of late was, um, I think Jim, who sadly is no longer, no, no longer. Oh, no, don't worry, <laughs> he's still around. He's still, Jim, who can't be with us tonight, was talking about um, somebody sticking electric motors into DeLoreans, which yes. strikes me as a very, very fitting way of powering that car. It would give it the go and yep. the and the futuristic drivetrain that it always needed, not the yes. crappy old PRV. V6 that was asthmatic at best and pointless at worst. Yeah, slow. 
I mean, that was always the joke, wasn't it? The fact that uh, in the film, they get to 88 miles an hour. In reality, it would probably get to about 85 or something stupid. Um, because the, And they dubbed the V6 over the V8 in Back to the Future. And obviously, Back to the Future being the DeLorean film. And the reason why most of us that love it, myself included, love, love the car. In fact, I'm sat here um, in my office at the moment whilst I'm recording. I'm trying to have a look to see how many DeLoreans I can see. Um, I've got at least one sat in front of me here on, on top of the desk. Um, and, and I think another couple on the shelf behind me. But I, I, what a cool car. What a, a film that um, defined many, many a play as a child, I suppose. Um, me and my brother, we always wanted the, you know, a remote control DeLorean and then, you know, and, and a real one later on. Now moving to the, to the point where they're relatively unaffordable. But for me, something... Something like that with a with with a motor would be fantastic because it, it would suddenly give it the performance that it deserved to have from the beginning. I'd, I'd always thought maybe a V eight swap would be sensible, um, but yeah, I think by far and away the best way of doing that would be to have a motor. And if you think about the shape of the car and where you've got the storage in the front or through or whatever you want to call it, you've got that that sort of uh, the chassis that runs underneath which is sort of like the bow tie shape if you like and then the back where the the engine is sit nice and low there's space for batteries and motors and bits and pieces and i think it'd be quite a good swap i was uh, reading recently i can't remember the name of the book so i can't publicize it but it was uh, an insider who'd been uh, one of uh, delorean's right-hand men in the uh, belfast factory and all of the shenanigans that went on there with government money and, and Irish government money and so on and so on. And and just some of the extraordinary stunts they pulled to keep the finance coming in because they they at one stage they were double selling cars into into US dealers. You know, they didn't have enough cars. They couldn't build them fast enough because they couldn't get them out of the factory actually working properly. Uh, and mm. and you know that that some of the cars would go through the entire production facility three, four times before they could get them going. And uh, one of the characters who was actually on the production line uh, sort of remembered that the thing that they had by all of the stations were washers, lots of washers. Everything was packed out with washers. It had to be, otherwise nothing would function properly. Because, the, you know, the, the, the fits were all too tight, so, that you know, the seats were packed up and so on and so on and uh, at the at the end when it was very clear that uh, the whole thing was going down the pan they were basically scavenging the second-hand parts and all the parts that had previously been uh, thrown out as, as not being fit for purpose and they were just bolting cars together out of whatever they could find laying around the factory but it, it was interesting that it was uh, obviously set in the time of the troubles and even when they built the factory they had to build, because of where it was built, it was built geographically between uh, a Catholic estate uh, and a Protestant estate. So they had to build two entrances. And only right at the very end, when it was very clear that they were all going to be made redundant, the few that were left, was there any sort of bonding between the two communities with a, with a, with a shared problem? It was, um, it's a, it's a fascinating book from somebody who's right on the inside. Uh, all the way through, and and the efforts they went to to fool the British government who were paying an awful lot of money into it. It, it was a car that was designed 
in the 70s, would have looked futuristic in the 70s and was doomed to fail from there on in. It took too long to get it to market. It was built by an an unskilled workforce that were, as I understand it, largely grateful of the investment and the jobs, but had never put cars together before, so didn't really understand how that worked. It was underpowered with a bad gearbox, uh, a a terrible engine, American cars, the handling was affected because they had to adjust the ride heights. They basically put blocks in the suspension to raise it up. It was just... There was so much, so there were issues, things like the doors, which which would fall back down again, should have had two gas struts, but for cost saving reasons, had one. It was just silly things like this, which affected the car so negatively that it it became a joke. And that that was the whole joke in, in Back to the Future. Originally, the time machine was going to be a fridge. They didn't want to, to encourage kids. I think it was Bob Gale didn't want to, to encourage kids to climb into fridges. And obviously the danger of climbing into a fridge or freezer and getting stuck inside there. Um, so they changed it to, to the DeLorean because it was a joke. The whole thing was a joke. Um, as it so happens, it turned out to be cool. I think they ever could have imagined. Uh, and I've been looking at some concept drawings, funny enough, for how they were originally going to modify the DeLorean with extended wheel arches with enclosed wheels and things for hover conversions and um, some non-physical links between the, the fusion generator. And, you know, there it, it was, it was a lot of really cool ideas they came up with. And I think that the overall the overall thing was, well, it's, it's, it's captured generations, hundreds, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, their imaginations. I remember being so captivated by the films that whenever we did school projects at school we used to have to write you know as if you you visited the Aztecs or something every single one of them I think uh, I'd nicked the DeLorean and gone back to to go and visit the Aztecs um, which incidentally aren't as old as Oxford University which is quite weird um, but nevertheless travel you know traveled around to the various different places Egypt whatever always in the DeLorean so yeah a, a big part of my childhood. The Aztecs probably had a, a, a perfectly working a uh, car assembly plant, which would have done better than, than Belfast about 500 potatoes, years before. potatoes, weren't they? Fantastic at potatoes, I yeah. think. Potatoes and... Uh, what's that stuff you put up So in if you're an agronomist, write in to us on all the socials at UK Motor Talk. Tell us, yes, the Aztecs were fantastic at potatoes, or no, you're wrong. You can't help but think that John Z. DeLorean would have been um, forgiven for sort of saying to the producers of the film, where the hell were you four years ago? <laughs> it would have been perfect marketing, much like the Italian job was perfect yeah. marketing for the Mini. And again, the reason why I got ever got into Minis was because of the Italian job, watching that as a kid, or at least not the bit with the prostitutes at the beginning, but the chase sequence, which was <laughs> I was shown as a kid. Uh, and, and again, you know, the BMC weren't interested. Uh, F- uh, Fiat wanted to change it to 500s. You can all have as many as you like. Producer and the director get a Ferrari, all that kind of stuff. But no, um, they stuck with the Minis, which is absolutely correct because it was cheeky and British and everything else that went with it. Um, and God knows how many Minis they sold. It it must be a huge part of the reason why it was endeared to so many people and continued all the way along till sort of 2000, 2001, when they, the very final... Cars were registered. Can be very expensive business putting cars in movies, though. For any of already who's seen the new James Bond movie, you know, not yet. Number... Don't tell anything. I don't want to know. Well, there's an awful lot of Range Rovers get trashed. Oh, awful yes. lot. If you're an Aston Martin fan, on the other hand, the yes. credits arrive about ten minutes in. The first ten minutes is is just 
just one of the greatest car chases I've ever seen, and I've seen most of them. It's a really, really good one. Been involved in, in a, some in, of them. In Italy, in, indeed. In a, in a tiny, tiny Italian hilltop town. It's it's brilliant stuff. Oh, I really, really want to see that now. Interesting that uh, that Maserati by Turbo that he's being chased by. I did drive one of those once. Meridian Maserati down in the New Forest lent me one. Very interesting motor car. Horrible box. Ugly box. But uh, brilliant engineering. Very, very good car to drive. There's a, a Thema Turbo for sale at the moment, if you've seen that. Oh, hello. Yeah. there's one of those... Actually quicker than the Ferrari one. The one with the V8 in it. Mm. Yes, it's a Ferrari engine. I mean, that's the special thing about it. I wonder how many of those have died to put their engines in other things. Not because it's not a pretty car at all, but, but interesting because of the engine, I think. Oh, no, well, the Ferrari one was the 832. That was that was a V8 from, the I think, the 308 or 328 or whatever it I was at the time. I think it was a 308. Mm. But there, there was, they did a theme. The Thema Turbo was the basically the same engine as in the Integrale, and it was actually mm. quicker than the Ferrari one because the Ferrari engine was so heavy um, that it didn't really handle well, whereas the the two litre was better balanced but you would in all conscience say i'm having the ferrari one if you're going to do it do mm. it properly yeah it's yeah. all it's all about what's written on the cam covers isn't it absolutely it's like a mustang you can buy that with a 2.3 litre which I've, I've driven all of the mustangs i have to say that the 2.3 handles better than the five litre v8 but if i spend my own money on one you buy a mustang because you want the muscle car and i would buy a five litre v8 because they're definitely better two litre and 2.3 litre cars to drive than a Mustang. Um, but if you want to sit there at the traffic lights and just you know rev it up and have the little shake from side to side, the little rock, then that is great fun. And I am a child, so yes, I would I, I quite enjoy that. And, and on that note, I must share something with you. Now, this is something that I saw uh, online. This is a fantastic for sale thread. And I'm a, a member of a number of different um, groups where people put things for sale. This was part of a, a number plate group. And it said, bought this for the wife, in brackets, as a joke, but she refuses to use it and my car isn't new enough. The registration is FA70GRE. So FA70GRE. So it reads as Fat Ogre. And I thought, I love the idea that someone would have the balls to buy that for their wife. It, it depends then, whether, you, whether you want to spend the rest of your life sleeping in the shed or not. Can you imagine just serving that or under a bridge? Saying, there you go, Fat Ogre. She, and it was just the comment that she refuses to use it. <laughs> oh. We are now communicating via solicitors. <laughs> Wish I had the money to do jokes like that. It, uh, it well, wouldn't go down very well. But... Quid. So if you want it, £500 <laughs> plus, the, plus the fees. It'd be worth it just to nail it on the back of a certain person's prime ministerial transport, wouldn't it? <laughs> mm, now there's an idea. And on that note... We're about to be dragged off by someone completely in secret. So from me, goodbye. <laughs> uh, from me too, goodbye. And it's been great fun again. Take care. You'll never take me alive. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. UK Motor Talk, a first take media production.